Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Matthew Delmont. He is a professor of history at Dartmouth. He is also in the Harvard College class of 2000 in Lowell House. His new book is titled Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, Bill Collins. I live in Aiken, South Carolina. I came here about 30 years ago for work at the Savannah River site. That was after graduated from Harvard in 63 and New England born and bred and uh, Navy 20 years and then Westinghouse for a while, then the Savannah River site, working in nuclear power and nuclear waste cleanup and so on. Now retired from all that. Okay. Living here with my wife. All right, Alden. Uh, grew up in uh, Connecticut and then have lived in South Carolina and Aiken, actually, DC, and DC, Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and now just south of San Francisco. And, I, and frankly, I'm a little bit pissed off at Kent. Uh, well, he, he keeps bringing these speakers in here, and most of them have written books, and, and I just can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take speed reading. You got to read here. <laughs> Peter. Hi, I'm I'm an editor and writer. I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire in a 200-year-old farmhouse uh, a few miles outside of a little old logging town, Lancaster, right on the Connecticut River, probably about the same size it was during the logging drives. Well, with all the suppression of history, and false history going on in the country, as it always has, I suppose. We're looking forward to this uh, such an interesting book, it looks like, and we're looking forward to it today. I I might, by the way, uh, I first uh, learned about the Double V campaign and uh, the Black experience in World War II and what was going going on and trying to integrate the army up at higher levels of the government through the work of some Harvard graduates too, uh, from uh, the books of one of our members, Spencer Spencer Jordan, his uh, four volume history of this country through the eyes of a black family and black veterans going back to World War uh, going back to Civil War. Jerry. Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California. And Alden, I'm with you. I'm only halfway through American Midnight at this point. It's hard to keep up with all the books. So, but it's a great read, no question. So, um, environmental lawyer, uh, I did spend time in Mauer freshman year with David Othmer. Uh, we loved it. Hopefully, it's been renovated since then, but who knows? <laughs> Hopefully, there's enough hot water anyway. <laughs> so, um, anyway, after Harvard uh, Law School, Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, and then I worked for the federal government, state government, oil companies, nonprofits, et cetera. I was an environmental lawyer, and still I'm kind of semi-retired. Okay, Allison, Cindy. Hi. Yeah, I'm Allison Wardle, Cindy. Um, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, class of 63, then the Peace Corps in Turkey, and master's at Harvard, Middle Eastern Studies, and then uh, basically I I moved to Italy, and basically after that, I just um, worked with my husband in his business uh, businesses. He had, and we also have a a winery, and um, that's what I'm still doing. Okay, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass. Um, across from you, freshman year, and in Matthews North, <clears throat> and uh, after. Harvard College, Harvard Business School, uh, India for two years with small businesses back to Boston, uh, investments, and trusts, and wills, and that sort of thing. Retired. Okay, George. George, George Jones, class of 63, currently in Ann Arbor, Michigan. <clears throat> and it occurs to me that I should perhaps 
get a background that looks more like what the weather actually is here now. Marcy. I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City. Um, help lead the successful iconic battle to get billions of federal dollars reallocated from the Westway Highway and River Development Project to mass transit. I'm now trying to ensure that our invaluable archive is made more accessible to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history. Okay, Mason. Uh, I'm Mason Morfitt. I spent the last uh, 35 years of my professional life working in land conservation. Since then, I've been working in climate change. I lived in Maine. I do live in Maine enough of the year to know that you want to get out of it in the wintertime. So over my shoulder, you can see the uh, bright light of a Florida afternoon. Uh, <laughs> David Othmer. David Othmer in Philadelphia. Um, God, haven't haven't heard of Mauer Hall for forever, and suddenly <laughs> it's the tip of everybody's. Uh, just talking. I grew up in South America and Central America, and went to the business school. And my career has been in the nonprofit world, primarily in nonprofits, in primarily in uh, in public radio and public television. Okay, John Woodward. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodward here in Ann Arbor, Michigan where I did editing and writing for a university publication for about 20 years or so. And before that in New York and Chicago with various publications. Hampton Howell, class of 63, living in Nashville now. Like a lot of you, I spent time in South America in, in uh, Brazil and Puerto Rico. And uh, I, I, I guess I was a token. I, I, I'm not sure whether I was a token jock here or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Spencer. Hi, that Florida light is what you see shining through my window. I'm Spencer Jordan, and I am a class of 61, uh, Kirkman House. And uh, I have since then uh, been engaged in. Uh, Black economic development, and uh, for 20, 30 years, first 30 years, and then last 30 years in sustainable development, uh, economic and educational. Uh, the th third thing is uh, aspect of my life has been writing, and uh, the books. Thanks a lot, Peter. Uh, that was a very gracious thing for you to say. Uh, uh, that uh, on these uh, books on American history. And uh, I'm, uh, for what Peter said, intensely interested and congratulate you on delving into that very exciting and momentous period in American history. Looking forward to it. I'm Jeff Fox, I'm also class of 63, Leverett House, uh, along with, uh, with Pete, Elizabeth. Um, let's see, after college uh, years of working as a sociologist, including teaching race relations a lot of times in, uh, in urban universities um, where you could get a diverse people together debating, arguing, and discovering things. And uh, um, now I'm living in Spain and writing fiction. George Allen. Hi there. Uh, I'm also class of 63. Uh, like Cindy Wardle, I grew up in Omaha. Uh, I actually knew Cindy uh, when we were both in high school. Uh, she's too modest to say so. She was at Omaha Central, which is uh, the premier place to have been. If you were in high school in Omaha, it's produced two Nobel laureates. It's a really distinguished place. Uh, I'm on the other side of greater Los Angeles from Jerry Secundi. He's over in Pasadena. I'm on the west side where we have sunshine for the first time in a few weeks, but chilly. All right. And Matthew, thank you for coming on. Welcome and uh, tell us about the book, your life, and good to see you. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to meet this wonderful group of Harvard alums. Um, so I'm Matt Delmont, obviously. Um, 
brief bio. I'm from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, originally. Um, went to Harvard, obviously, graduated in 2000, was in Mauer B first year. Um, our claim to fame is we won the, the yard bucket for the intramural championship our freshman year, uh, and then was in the Lowell House for uh, sophomore through senior Go year. Mauer. <laughs> Go Mauer! Go um, Mauer! From Harvard, so when I graduated from Harvard, I had no idea I was going to become a professor. Um, so my first job was at a consulting firm called Mercer in New York City. Uh, and then I was there for a year and a half, and then 9-11 happened, um, which, um, in addition to being a horrible, horrible uh, moment, also cratered the uh, consulting industry for, for that period of time. Um, from there, I went to um, Burger King Corporation uh, down in Miami, Florida. So for a period of time, my email address was actually mattdelmont at whopper.com. Um, <laughs> so not a lot of people can claim to have gone to Harvard and worked at Burger King. I'm, I'm in that small Venn diagram. Um, and it was while I was in Miami, I applied to graduate school um, and ended up going to Brown University to, to get my master's and PhD in American studies. Um, I came to Dartmouth in 2018. Uh, I live here with uh, my wife, who's also a professor, uh, and our two kids who are now 11 and 8 years old in fifth grade and third grade. Uh, and they're both playing basketball this winter. So a lot of our time after school is um, taking them to and from basketball practice and my wife's coaching uh, our son's team. Um, this book, um, so I'll say maybe there's a few words about the book and then open up for Q&A because I'd love to hear questions you have about the book. Um, this book is my fifth book overall, uh, but it's my first with the trade press. So it's the first to really try to reach a much broader audience. And so it's been really exciting to have a chance to talk about the book uh, at NPR and Washington Post and see it reviewed in the New York Times. Um, all my work is about African-American history and the history of civil rights. And I'd say most broadly, I'm interested in the stories we tell about the past and the implications of those stories for the present and for the future. Um, I was drawn to this book um, because my, my last book project was actually a digital book project called Black Quotidian. Um, so if you were to search for blackquotidian.org, um, it was published by Stanford University Press, but it's just a, a digital publication. Um, for that project, I looked at um, African-American newspapers, papers like the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier. You know, just go through different historical newspapers to try to get a sense of what day-to-day -day life was like for different black communities uh, at different points in time over the last hundred years. When I was going through newspapers from the war years, I kept coming across uh, small stories and pictures of uh, the more than a million black men and women who served the country during World War II. Um, and these weren't famous folks. These were just average people from Cincinnati, from Cleveland, from Los Angeles. Um, first, I would say I came across dozens of these and eventually hundreds of them. Um, and I was really surprised by it. I mean, obviously, as a historian, I've taught about the history of World War II. Uh, I've taught about the Double Victory Campaign and black participation in the war. But seeing all of these snapshots and small articles of, of the average black Americans who served in the war really opened my eyes and it, it made me curious. And so that was about seven years ago. Um, and that's what led me to work on this project. Um, and I was really amazed at how much I was able to find. Um, and what I came away from the project <clears throat> believing and arguing, hopefully that comes to it in the book, is that you can't talk about the history of World War II without talking about the experience and the contributions of black Americans. Um, so I'll just try to highlight a couple of the, the key arguments that I hope the book makes. The first is that from the Black American perspective, the war doesn't start with Pearl Harbor. Um, it actually starts several years earlier. If you looked at a Black newspaper from 1933, 34, 35, you'd see extensive coverage of the rise of fascism in Europe, um, both the rise of Adolf Hitler's regime in Nazi Germany, but also uh, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, and then the Spanish Civil War in 1936, when uh, General Franco's forces have a, a military coup. Those papers are already using words like the Second World War has started in Europe by 1936. Black Americans were among the first to recognize the really serious threat that fascism posed and that Adolf Hitler's regime posed because they recognized the commonalities between the kind of policies that Hitler was implementing in, Jura, in Germany and the kind of treatment Black Americans were receiving, particularly in the Jim Crow South. They understood that Hitler was explicitly pointing to Jim Crow policies to help justify his treatment of Jews in Europe. And so the, the first chapter of the book, really the first couple of chapters of the book, start before <laughs> to understand why Black Americans volunteered to go fight in the Spanish Civil War, but then also to understand why civil rights activists had to fight just for the opportunity for Black Americans to serve in the military in the run-up to World War II, um, to understand the efforts to try to desegregate the defense industries as, the, as those started to boom. So the first key argument is that the story has to start before 1941. The second argument is that Black Americans were really vital to helping win the war in a military perspective. And this is actually an argument I didn't know I was going to be making or 
I didn't know it was going to be as large of a part of the book as it ended up being. And everyone's familiar with groups like the Tuskegee Airmen, um, and there were a number of black units that ended up in combat roles. Um, Tuskegee Airmen were the pioneering fighter pilots. Um, you had the first group of black Marines, the Monford Point Marines, uh, who served in Iwo Jima and Saipan. Uh, there were groups like the 761st Black Panther Tank Battalion that fought for 160 days consecutively across four major campaigns, including the Battle of the Bulge. There were black troops at D-Day. Every major battle, black troops were involved. But by and large, the much larger role that black troops played was in the supply and logistical forces. These were the people who were uh, clearing jungles to build runways, building roads through um, really arduous terrain in Alaska and in, in Asia, um, helping to load and unload ships and trucks, and then driving those trucks across Europe. I think if we understand World War II not just as a battle of strategy and will, but as a battle of supply, then it becomes really clear the really important role Black Americans played to help win the war. I think the best example of this in the book is a group like the Red Ball Express truck drivers. Um, when we think about D-Day, D-Day just stood for day of the invasion. There was still D-Day plus one, D-Day plus two, and it was really the weeks and months after that that was the second and really larger part of the battle because America and the Allies had to, to supply all of the troops that had just crossed the channel and were now pushing into Europe. Um, the Red Ball Express helped to move 400,000 tons of supplies. They were moving thousands of tons per day, ammunition, food, um, um, gas, oil, everything that the, the troops needed as they were pushing through. That group of truck drivers is what helped to make the Allies the most mobile force in the war, far more mobile and dynamic than the German military was. That was a detail I didn't know was going to be as large of a part of the book as it was, but I came away from the book arguing not just we have to talk about the experience of black Americans, but that the allies truly couldn't have won the war if they didn't have this vast number of black troops forming the, the backbone of the, of the supply and logistical effort. So that's the second piece. And then the third piece is that for black Americans, the war doesn't end in 1945. Uh, black veterans come back and become the foundation of the civil rights movement. Because if we take the double victory campaign seriously, that black Americans were fighting for victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home, the military battles helped to defeat fascism abroad, at least for a time. That battle against racism at home was still very much ongoing. And so for black Americans, they come back and they immediately start taking on um, the battle on the home front. As one black veteran put it, he went from fighting in the European theater of operations to fighting in the Southern theater of operations. And so there, the stories of black veterans like Medgar Evers, W. Johnson Roundtree, Amzie Moore, Jose Williams, all of these veterans, they become uh, really the lifeblood of the civil rights movement, um, and they're fighting for, for actual freedom and democracy in the United States. Um, and so taken together, my hope is that the book changes the way that average Americans think about the history of World War II, uh, and ideally gives us um, the evidence to be able to put black Americans back at the center of that story. So let me stop there, uh, and would love to hear your questions. Uh, and I apologize for some of the noise in the background. I'm in one of Dartmouth's old buildings that has uh, steam pipes. And so if you hear clanking, it's not a, a 19th century train uh, starting in my office. It's the, the steam pipes that come on every time this day. Okay. Uh, questions? Me? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, um, yeah, my, my father was in World War II. He wasn't abroad. He was a physician. And uh, first he was sent to a uh, base. They didn't know he was a black physician. So they sent him to North Carolina. Then when he got there, they put him in a barracks all by himself, and it was in the uh, winter. Hmm. Uh, he said, fortunately for him, he got sick in, under those conditions, and they had to send him back to um, Battle Creek. Then he went to uh, Tuskegee and, and was a um, physician with the airmen. But that gave him a very, uh, let's say, he, he was glad that he didn't have to go over and uh, fight because he had an ambivalent feeling towards the army, which thanks to the airmen, he began to uh, kind of be proud of it. But on the other hand, he told us about the segregation. Thank you so much for sharing that, John. Um, one of the things that, that surprised me was um, all the other ground personnel who were at the Tuskegee Air Base. I mean, 
obviously the the flyers get the most attention but as you're saying your your dad was there as a doctor there were black nurses they were there um they're obviously mechanics who worked on the airplanes there were meteorologists uh, people who had uh, science and engineering backgrounds from places like mit um all all black scientists who helped to read the weather reports to make sure it was safe for the the pilots to fly and so what i try to describe in the book is the um this kind of really exciting world of, of black excellence that really took shape at Tuskegee, um, but also how difficult it was on a day-to-day basis on these bases, particularly in the, the South, that the, the kind of treatment that black troops received um, was, to their description, was, was just horrendous. Anytime they went into town, um, they were harassed by, uh, by sheriffs, by bus drivers, by townspeople. Um, and so there's actually a point where there was nearly a, uh, a riot at the Tuskegee Air Base because the, the pilots were so upset that one of the nurses had gone into Montgomery uh, and got beaten by police when she was on the bus trying to get back because she wouldn't sit in the back of the bus like she was, um, like she was being ordered to do. Um, so I really appreciate that your, your dad was one of the, yeah. the doctors at Tuskegee. Yeah, they tried to tell the uh, wives of the of the men to they just stay home, you know, all day. Don't go outside and uh, stay home with the kids because something's likely to happen if you just go around town. Spencer, oh boy, <laughs> what a what a thing! Uh, very quickly, it was just a series of photographs were going through my mind. Uh, my family was involved in every single aspect that you talked about. Uh, my cousin uh, in the South Pacific, when the uh, islands were taken, the, uh, they would move in with the uh, Air Force uh, 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 supply groups and they, they would pave the uh, and build runways for the uh, planes to take off. They weren't missing a beat, just like you said, the tr- black troops were vital. Uh, we had, uh, in terms of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, I have a, and I was looking for it, I couldn't find a copy of the Congressional Medal of Honor that my uh, mother's cousin, my first cousin, uh, uh, Freddie Hutchinson, uh, won for training the Tuskegee Airmen. He had been in the war. He was a brilliant pilot since he was 17 years old. He went into the RAF because he couldn't get into the American uh, uh, Air Force. And the guy said, don't come here. You'll never fly. You're already an ace flyer and you're 24 years old. He went to Canada and was so good, he trained the Canadian Air Force, uh, the Royal Air Force in Canada, uh, for uh, to fly against. And he was part of the uh, Lynn Lease flying the bombers early. Before we were in the war, he was in the war. And uh, my dad was uh, one of the, uh, uh, you mentioned the double V. It's on the cover of the book. I'm going to send you this book. And I want to get yours. I'm gonna, uh, I'd like to get an autographed copy. Uh, my uh, my other uh, 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 cousin was on the front line against the Hitler line in uh, in, uh, in Italy. Uh, that uh, the brave the winner of '44 and uh, uh, was one of the outstanding that 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 got denigrated and never until recently was recognized for the heroic stand they pushed. They pushed all the way up from uh, uh, from uh, Rome all the way up to the Pyrenees and the Siegfried line. And Hitler said, hold this at all costs. I put my name on it. And they were crossing that river every day without the adequate clothing, without the adequate ammunition and with no artillery support. And the famous uh, Nisai group came in uh, in April and uh, with all the bomber support and all the, uh, they were the greatest fighter. I mean, they were, don't get me wrong. incredibly, you know, just world-class, but they had, uh, and they had all this support. And my cousin who was wounded there on the Siegfried, on the Hitler line, uh, t- has stories and tells of uh, uh, things on it. So that's it. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, what a, what a, I'm so glad that I attended this and see, see what you've done. Boy, thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Spencer. It's wonderful to hear all, all your family connections. And yes, I'd love to, to swap books with you. Um, that would be fantastic. Okay. Uh, George Jones. So given our ages, I suspect that all of us probably had relatives who fought in World War II. I had a cousin who was in the Army, and the stories he told me were in, in, that he spent a lot of time in the stockade primarily for protesting the racist treatment he received in various contexts while he was serving. 
So I wonder in your studies, did you look at the sort of treatments and responses that the black soldiers got to their protests against the sort of racist and white supremacist treatment they might have actually had to encounter during their service? Definitely. Thank, thank you for asking about that. Um, so in terms of sources, I drew a lot on um, archival records, like a lot of historians do, and, and black newspaper accounts. Um, and so where a lot of that came up were soldiers writing letters to either editors at the black newspapers like Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, or directly to the NAACP. Um, so one of the key figures in the book is uh, Thurgood Marshall, <clears throat> who was the head of the legal division at the time of the NAACP. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of letters that came into the offices of, of the NAACP from black soldiers and sailors describing the kind of uh, racial treat, racist treatment and harassment that they, they received on these military bases or on, on Navy ships. Things got so bad that they said that they were eager to deploy to the European theater, Pacific theater, because they would feel safer there than they felt on these bases in Georgia, Mississippi, or, or Alabama. And so through those sources, I try to weave in, um, I think, as, as you're saying, the kind of treatment black troops experienced, but also how they responded, uh, that people um, would would push back. And in, in some cases, pushing back meant that they end up in the stockade, meant that they got dishonorable discharges. Um, or meant that they just that their officers made each and every day for them uh, a living hell. That this was sort of part of their their experience of the war. It also weaving that in, I think, nevertheless, for a lot of these these troops, they experienced all of that. They pushed back against all of that, and then when they were called upon to to do their role in the war, they still did the work that they were being asked to do to help win the war, or they went and fought in the in the battles. Uh, one of the quotes that stands out to me is um, in the so. At the end of World War II, there are 433 medals of honor that are awarded. None of them during the war were awarded, awarded to black troops. Um, in the 1990s, the Army does a review of um, people who were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest award uh, within the Army. And they promote seven of those from Distinguished Service Crosses to medals of honor. The only one who's still alive to receive it in person is a man named uh, Vernon Baker. Um, and what he said was that he said, I was an angry young man. We were all angry, but we had a job to do and we did it. And I think for me, that was powerful because I think there's I think sometimes a misconception that people either were extremely patriotic and they did service or they were dissenting and they were only sort of protesting the kind of treatment. I think for a lot of these men and women, both things could be true. Right? The part of what frustrated them so much was that they're being treated this way in the service of their country, being treated this way while wearing the uniform of their country willing to, to risk, in some cases, give their lives uh, to defend the United States. Um, and I think overall, I think why it's so important to foreground these stories is these typically are not the stories we tell about World War II. Right? We've gotten to this point where we tend to talk about it as the quote-unquote good war fought by the greatest generation. Parts of that story are true, but when you focus on the African-American experience, the country was a, a deeply, deeply racist place in the 1940s, right? and that, that was evident to anyone who is paying attention. Um, and we, we've lost part of that story um, through the kind of mythology that's been built up around World War II since then. Um, I'd be interested in a little bit of uh, amplification of what you said that, that uh, some of these soldiers came back and got into the civil rights movement and, and how it caused people to get in the civil rights movement. I had the honor uh, at the end of my Sophomore year, I went down with a friend, a German friend of mine, and we uh, hitchhiked around in, in the South and went to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and I happened to meet Medgar Evers. Um, and uh, I can remember exactly where I was on our graduation day when that announcement came over the uh, radio that he had been murdered. Uh, so I'd like to know a little bit more about um, about the, the, the causality, perhaps, uh, in the civil rights movement. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so let me approach it in a couple of ways. I think one, a key part of the story is that the infrastructure of the modern civil rights movement gets built out during World War II. Now, obviously, Black Americans have been protesting and fighting for freedom for decades and decades, and had organized some of the, the key civil rights groups even before the. World War II. So it's not like it starts from nowhere. But the infrastructure gets built out during the war. What I mean by that is during the war, the NAACP, for example, um, is really primarily an organization that's located in the Northeast and particularly in sort of New York City and areas around that. By the end of the war, they have branches all across the country and members all across the country because of intentional organizing efforts. 
Um, one of the characters in the book is Ella Baker, the grassroots organizer who becomes more famous for her work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. She's the head of the NAAC effort to um, organize branches during the war. And she's tremendously successful because she has the, the insight that you don't have to be a professional class person to be a leader. You don't have to just be a, a black lawyer or um, um, a doctor to be a leader. She's organizing among sharecroppers and among barbers and everyday, everyday black folks. She's going all across the, the South, the Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, organizing these chapters. And so there are tens of thousands more members of the NAACP by the end of the war than they're at the start of the war. So there's an infrastructure there because membership also also means that the NAACP has more money to be able to um, to fight some of the legal cases that come out after the war. So the infrastructure gets built out. The second thing is for that generation of black veterans, they had just fought a war that was at least nominally about freedom and democracy, right? And they very rightly said, we want that same freedom and democracy we were trying to bring to Europe. We want to see that in the United States. And so the and very pointed questions about what is America about, like, is America going to be an actual democracy? Those are um, helping to fuel the, um, the efforts of, of black veterans. Uh, thinking about Meg Rivers, he's, he's 19 um, when he gets sent to Europe. Um, he's part of a, a group that is linked to the Red Ball Express. They're unloading and loading cargo for these Red Ball Express truck drivers. His unit arrives at Normandy just days after the D-Day invasion. He comes back, and on his 21st birthday in 1946, he leads a group of black veterans who try to register to vote in Decatur, Mississippi, only to be turned away by a white mob with guns. And so I think for Evers and for the, the hundreds and hundreds of other black veterans who participate in the civil rights movement, they came home with a, a very clear-eyed understanding that they wanted actual freedom and democracy, and they knew they were going to have to organize and fight for it. And I think the organizational structure was, was stronger at the end of the war than it was at the start of the war. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Hamp, Hampton. Yeah, uh, this is Hamp. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I'm sort of interested in the phenomenon, uh, the, the overall phenomenon that, cu- that comes out a lot of the invisib- <clears throat> invisibility of uh, Black accomplishments and the, the uh, visibility of, uh, of uh, Black crime. Uh, daily daily in the uh, local news and everything and uh it and that was coming out in the uh troops that you're talking about and uh i was particularly interested uh in uh, nashville there's a black newspaper called the tennessee tribune and we we had an anti rape uh i helped put on anti-racism uh seminar for a couple of groups of Unitarians that, that on the whole are extremely liberal and very well intentioned consciously towards towards uh, civil rights issues. And none of them had, had, uh, had heard of the Tennessee Tribune. And it, it, it was kind of shocking. And, and that was kind of a re- repository of some uh, Nashville history. That, that that had had gone down, and I, I'm just wondering uh, if you have any uh, uh, thoughts about how to uh, penetrate that bubble. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, um, maybe let me approach it historically first, and then move to the present. Um, a key question for historians is always: What sources do you use? And so, black newspapers were a really important source for this history because black newspapers understood the really important work that black Americans were doing during the war. There were um, war correspondents, black war correspondents who were embedded with a lot of these units. Um, So Langston Hughes was a war correspondent for the Baltimore African-American. He goes to Spain and covers black volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. Um, And then there are are men named like Tresvent Anderson, uh, Ali Stewart, who are roughly the equivalent of Ernie Pyle, the, the famous white war correspondent. They're embedded with these troops and they're, writing really powerful editorials about how black troops are doing important work behind the scenes that's not going to make it in the mainstream white newspapers. It's going to be invisible to most white Americans, but they want black readers at home to know that that their boys are out there helping to fight and win the war. I think those stories are important because sometimes it's easy to say that this history is, um, is unknown. And that's not technically true, right? 
black people knew this history. I think some of the alums on the call, they talk about like family stories know this history. Black newspapers recorded this history. But these histories were were intentionally written out of the a lot of the mainstream accounts of the war, the kind of things that would show up in US history textbooks. Like the the evidence was there, just that the people by and large who were writing the mainstream histories for the, the several decades after the war didn't focus on these accounts. Because if you looked at a mainstream white newspaper from the war years, you would have hardly any idea that there were a million black Americans in the war. They, they didn't talk much about the kind of uh, contributions of the Tuskegee Airmen or the tank battalions or the, the um, engineers and quartermasters. And so if you looked at the New York Times or Washington Post or Chicago Tribune or any of the much smaller dailies um, in, in white communities, you just wouldn't know that black Americans were there. And so I think going into the present, I think there are two things to say is I think a lot of these debates about how we can and should teach history are obviously aggravating to me as a historian because um, they're so wrongheaded. But I think what I try to push people on is the question is always about evidence, right? That we're not, we're not making these things up, right? That the history I write in this book is the, it's the history, whether Biden's in office or Trump's in office or Obama or Bush or whoever comes in the future, <clears throat> this history is the history because it's based on, on evidence. And so I think encouraging people to, to reach out broadly in terms of where they're drawing evidence from historically. And then their own consumption media today, think about where do you draw your news from, right? And if it's only seeming to talk to one demographic and that demographic is your demographic, like there are other news outlets, right? That those might be newspapers, they might be digital papers now, they might be social media feeds. Um, there's different ways to try to broaden your uh, where your community where you're getting your news from that can help get you outside of your bubble. Matthew, first, uh, I have to uh, say I'm proud of uh, the fact that you are a Maurer graduate and another brilliant scholar. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Power <laughs> mafia. But second, uh, as my classmates know, my dad's white and Jewish, my mom black. I grew up in segregated Washington D.C. And had a lot of anger um, growing up. Um, one of the close family friends was Benjamin O. Davis Jr. He was a neighbor and a very close friend of my family. Would come to dinner periodically. Uh, went to my first wedding. I still have his wedding gift uh, after all these years. Um, one of the things that he taught me was keep it together. You know, the anger in and of itself is not going to get you anywhere. So believe it or not, study, graduate, get a degree and do some good. So I will never forget that. He was not someone that would talk a lot about the bitterness that he encountered at West Point and also in the Air Force itself. But obviously, I guess he was the first four-star Black general uh, that we had. And his dad was the first Black general. So on the Jewish side of the family, so just so you know, I know it's not in your book, uh, one of my uncles fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in, in the Civil War in Spain. Um, Another one was an Iwo Jima, another one a destroyer. And of course, as <clears throat> excuse me, as we die out, some of those memories will be forgotten. But I'll leave you with this last thought. My Jewish uncle, Sammy, who was in telecommunications in the army on Iwo Jima, when he came back, tried to get a job with AT&T, they would not hire Jews. So mm. again, we saw segregated on both sides, both the black side and the Jewish side. Uh -huh. so hopefully we'll come a little way. way. Thank you for sharing that. If I can respond quickly on a couple of things. So it's amazing that you had a personal connection um, to Benjamin Davis Jr. He's one of the key figures in the book that I try to tell the story of the Tuskegee Airmen through. And his autobiography is a really powerful source um, for that. And just the, what they um, what they had to endure. And just the fact that he would graduate from West Point in 1936 and the Army had no idea what to do with him. Because right? they weren't allowing black men to be pilots at that point. Um, and then in terms of the, sort of the Jewish and um, African-American uh, collaborations, relationships. One of the things that, again, kind of surprised me when I got into the book was that one of the ways I think we've misremembered or written later ideas back onto the history of the war is once the horrors of the Holocaust become more apparent after the end of the war, it becomes easier to pretend that America got into the war to help stop the Nazi regime and yeah. to help prevent the Holocaust. I think, as most of you know, that, that's not true, right? When you actually look at the public polling during the war and a lot of the interviews that were taking place with troops and with average white Americans, most average white Americans who aren't Jewish don't really understand what the war is about. Right? They they understand that the United States is trying to get revenge against Japan, but the, with the war in Europe, the the polling and the the interviews that happen, people are basically shrugging. Like we don't we don't really get it. Like we don't know why we're fighting this war. And so one of the things I try to argue in the book is it's really black Americans and Jewish Americans who 
have the most clear-eyed view of like what's at stake in the war because they understand the 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 horror and the terror of Nazism much more clearly than than average white Americans who aren't Jewish do. Um, so I think it's a, it's an important point. Thank you, uh, Bill. Yeah, I just wanted to mention Dory Miller, you know, who was the mess attendant on board the West Virginia at Pearl Harbor, who, after carrying some wounded people from down below, manned a machine gun and fired it for a long time, probably brought down at least one Japanese aircraft. He did get recognition quite early, Navy Cross, awarded by Admiral Nimitz personally. He was killed later in the war on board a different ship, and there's now an aircraft carrier, I understand, going to be named for him next for one of the upcoming... Gerald Ford class carriers. Um, so he did get recognition and he was used, his image was used in selling war bonds and so on. <clears throat> yeah. yeah th- thank you for, for mentioning that. Um, one of my talks next week is down at the, the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, which I'm looking forward to having a t- chance to talk with them. Um, one of the things that um, really, so black Americans obviously take tremendous pride in, in Doris Miller and what he does at Pearl Harbor. And, and they link it to the kind of absurdity of the, the Navy and the Army's racial policies, because particularly in the Navy, there aren't any non-combat roles on ships, right? That they're only allowing black men to serve as mess attendants, where they will essentially wait on and serve white officers. But yeah. if you're on a ship and you're a mess attendant and torpedoes start hitting your ship or you're in an, uh, an air raid, right? You're, you're in combat. And so not only Doris Miller, there are other black Americans who died at Pearl Harbor who performed heroically, even though they, they weren't in combat roles later in the war. But that, that absurdity of, Mm-hmm. The um the racial policies that would suggest that Black Americans don't have the the courage or the the um intelligence or bravery to serve in combat roles they they really pointed to Doris Miller as as evidence that that was a, a faulty policy. I was wanted I wanted to ask because this is an ignorant question I'm sure for people who are historians but the uh, the segregation of the troops how was that justified was that a, something legal or was it de facto but I mean, it did happen in Europe. There were just, there were, you know, troops that were just groups of black people and they weren't, um, they weren't integrated with the other troops. And how did that happen? Yeah, thanks for asking it. And there's, there are no ignorant or bad questions. It's, it's a great question, actually. Um, because it points to, there was no strategic or tactical purpose for segregation. It was actually the opposite. It was tremendously cumbersome, onerous, and resource intensive to have to maintain segregation among a, a massive military. It made the military less effective fighting force to have to segregate everything because it meant that they had to keep track of black and white troops in different um, different deployments. They had to have separate latrines, separate dining facilities. Everything was separate. The justification uh, was the, the military's own policies. Um, so between World War One and World War Two, the military intentionally pushes out as many black Americans as they can. Um, they write their own internal documents that have these very deeply upsetting uh, claims that draw on racial pseudoscience to argue that black Americans don't have the same uh, intelligence, courage, or uh, capacities really to be military leaders or to be able to serve, serve in combat. And so they, they use that, these are the documents that they end up um, teaching at places like West Point um, between the 1920s and all the way up into to World War II. And so the Army's policies and their sort of belief system is that Black Americans just aren't cut out to do the job. And so they use that to maintain uh, segregation. Obviously, at the time, segregation is the, the law of the land across the South, and it's the um, the policy, the day-to-day policy in many parts outside of the South as well. And so that's why you don't see um, the military move away from it, is that they, they know there's going to be outcries from, from white Americans. And so one of the things I try to argue in the book is that there, there was no um, – tactical reason or strategic reason to segregate. The only reason to do it was to appease white racial prejudice. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were so uh, unqualified that uh, they blundered their way all the way to the Stay River in Germany. And when Patton got there to declare the end of the war, who did he see? But the 761st Battalion there had gone so fast that Patton lost touch with where they were. And uh <laughs> And they went all all their own through Germany and got to the Stay River and were there sitting on the tanks drinking with the Russians. <laughs> now, the, the thing that, uh, that, that I really liked uh, uh, hearing about was that you brought up in your book uh, about the press, the Black press. The Pittsburgh Courier 
And uh, the Murphy families, Afro-American, were instrumental in mobilizing uh, and black, uh, you know, enthusiasm uh, for the war. Uh, and another thing was the radio stations and the churches, uh, the, uh, the Wings Over Jordan broadcast uh, out of Cleveland uh, was one of the only national black broadcasts in the country. And they were a church-based one. And every Sunday morning, they would have speakers on promoting the war. My dad was one of them. And we have letters from the soldiers, you know, from the sea saying, thank you for doing this. You're keeping our spirit up, you know, and uh, uh, we know what we're fighting for. That was for the double V campaign. His speech was all on the double V campaign. And it, even a guy from Africa back and said, I, I heard your speech, it was incredible. And uh, uh, so that, that the press, and the uh, the uh, the radio and the ch churches were were all in on that. So that's that was a great part of the uh, thing. I see that you have a book on the was it the fine, the nicest kids in town yeah. about um, about the rock and roll uh, Dick Clark. Yeah, American Bandstand. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wish you could come back. If you can't talk about not a dovetail issues of. <laughs> domestic Jim Crow and segregation to get into the uh, American bandstand and rock and roll. You probably, I don't know if you could do it now, but could you ever do it in the future? Sure. Yeah. Happy. Can, can send me an email. We can find another time. Um, thanks for asking about it. You, you can also, if, I, for that project as well, there's a, a digital companion to it. So if you are okay with reading stuff on the web, um, maybe about a third of the book content is on a website called nicestkids.com. Um, the short, short version there, and this won't be news to anyone who grew up outside the South, is that the racism was equally intense in places like Philadelphia. And so what I tried to show in that book was that they used a series of very underhanded techniques to maintain segregation on American bandstand. And that was very similar to how the Philadelphia, Philadelphia public schools became racially segregated at the same time um, in the 1950s and 60s. That, that was my first book project that grew out of my dissertation. Ah, we'll have uh, to have you back for that. Wow. Yeah. Jeff, yeah. I have, I have two, two very different kinds of questions. So I'll ask the first one now, and maybe I'll have a chance to ask the second one later. Um, one of them was um, right after the victory of the, the Allied troops, and there are, all these, uh, there are all these Black troops, like in Germany, and uh, I think in France and, 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 and elsewhere. And... Um, do you do you get it at all into their experience and how they were received, and if that changed their attitudes? Seeing that they, you know, were they you know were they confronting different kinds of reactions from from the Europeans uh, than uh, than they were used to? Thanks for asking. I don't get into it in great detail, but what I can share is for black troops who were in France, <clears throat> excuse me, France or in England, they describe the treatment from Europeans as being uh, infinitely better than the kind of treatment they received from white Americans at home. Um, they were able to to eat and drink in establishments and just be treated um, much more civilly than they were treated uh, back in the United States. Um, things got worse when white troops went over and tried to um, implement American-style racism and American-style segregation in these European towns because they were upset at the idea that you had these black troops drinking, uh, eating, and dancing alongside white Europeans. And so that's where things got, got tense. For the troops um, <clears throat> afterwards during the occupation, a, a higher percentage of black troops re-enlist because they actually prefer to stay in Europe than come back to the United States. And so the, by and large, the treatment is, is uh, preferable in Europe. Yeah. That makes sense. And okay. I apologize. I probably have time for one more question that I have to jump oh, off okay. at one for another meeting here. One more. Uh, Jeff, last question. Okay. Well, I, I just saw Kent's great uh, video on the Black GI, which focuses mainly on uh, Vietnam, Vietnam War. And so I'm just wondering what what the uh, some of the consequences were for the, this experience in World War II. Did it affect, were, were they able to effectively change practices in the military? It's a, a wonderful question, actually, and maybe I'll, I'll come back in a couple of years' time. My next book project is going to be on uh, Black Americans in Vietnam, so I'm at the early stages of trying to uh, gather up information on that project. I think the quick things I would say, um, President Truman signs an executive order in 1948 to desegregate the military, um, which is, is a huge deal. I mean, it, it probably comes a decade too late. Um, the military could have been 
integrated in 1938 just as easily. But in 1948, that's before Brown versus Board, 1954. Um, it's before most of corporate America and academia has meaningful integration. And so it does put the military on a, um, a more forward-looking trajectory in terms of uh, desegregation. The entire military isn't really fully desegregated until the end of the Korean War in 1953, but it, it's, it's moving in that direction. And so I think forecasting out to something like Vietnam, um, Black Americans participate at a higher percentage than their percentage of the population in the war in Vietnam, particularly early on. Um, they're more in the combat roles. They're suffering higher casualties. And part of the, the complicated part is that depending on who you're talking to at the time, that's either a positive thing that for some of the older generation of civil rights activists like Roy Wilkins and, um, and Whitney Young, they see it as a positive that black Americans are now overrepresented in an integrated military because that's what they fought for. They wanted black Americans to have a larger role in that, in that institution for a larger perspective, a percentage of black Americans, um, Martin Luther King, Silky Carmichael, uh, um, uh, Coretta Scott King, Diane Nash, the military is gotten itself engaged in, in a, a war in Vietnam that is, um, unjustified and unmoral on, on any um, on any criteria, and so it's a negative that Black Americans have now taken on this role in a military that's, that's involved in these um, uh, mistaken adventures. Um, I think the last thing I'll say is, from Vietnam on, once the military becomes an all volunteer force in 1973, Black Americans have have continued to be overrepresented in the military because it remains one of the um, the better uh, career options for a lot of younger Black Americans, particularly folks from uh, lower middle class and working class backgrounds, and so that's, it's just a, a complicated reality that I does think I do think grows out of World War II, um, because fighting for the integration of the military was was a key civil rights issue uh, before and during the war. Thank you, yeah. well, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, can can share my email with anybody if you have any other follow-up questions. Uh, and would always be happy to come back in the group. And thanks so much uh, to... Okay. Thank, okay. You. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Matthew Delmont. His new book is titled Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.